Alright, once again this morning, continuing in Romans, I'm going to be in chapter 4 this morning, Faith, Righteousness, Part 2, and as we've moved to what seems to be like warp speed over the first three chapters of Romans in the last couple of weeks, we have seen Paul declare that he is not ashamed of the Gospel. He writes in Romans chapter 1 and says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is not ashamed. Instead, he is eagerly obliged to the Gospel. A Gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. A Gospel that is the righteousness of God being revealed, literally being uncovered before men's heart and eyes. A Gospel that is the wrath of God revealed against men who in their ungodly character act unrighteously in order to suppress the truth and replace God with something that they feel more comfortable with. Something that's more akin to them. For men are enslaved to their own desires. And therefore, they are in pitiful and desperate need of salvation. Not simply an offer of salvation, but a Savior who is powerful to say. Paul talks about the means and the end of the Gospel. The means of salvation, Paul says, is not religion. It's not the law of Moses or righteous works of men. In fact, Paul teaches that the law exists not to save men from sin, but to convict men of sin by exposing it. When he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Instead, Scripture teaches us that the means of salvation is by faith and for faith. That the source of our righteousness is faith and that the purpose of our righteousness is faith. While the means of salvation is faith, salvation's end is nothing short of redemption itself. God buying His people back, paying the ransom for their eternal souls. This ransom is accomplished, it is paid for, By propitiation through the blood of Jesus Christ. God ransoming His people. Paying the demand for our lifeblood with the lifeblood of His own Son. In Romans chapter 6 verse 23, Paul writes and says that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So often we hear that What we are being ransomed back from is sin. But the reality is, is you can't pay a ransom to appease a moral truth or concept. Instead, Scripture makes it clear that when ransoms are paid, they're paid to entities. We are ransomed from the one who pays the wage of sin. We are ransomed by God. From God Himself. For in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we are told that it is not the wrath of sin that is being revealed from heaven against men, but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Friends, our God is not, ju- not just just. And He is not only justifier. Praise the Lord, He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, in verses 21 through 26, Paul writes and says, But now, the wrath against men's sin is clear, guilt is evident, but this is gospel after all, this is good news, and here it is. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Apostle teaches us that not only is God justifying the sins of of His people, not only is He justifying His people in their sin in order that they might become the righteousness of God by the power of God through faith and for faith, but that God has been doing this. God has been working in the goodness of His salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ long before men ever understood that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. And He did this. He put Him forward to be seen as the propitiation by which your ransom was paid. Not just the fact that it was paid, but here's how it was paid. And it was not paid under the table. It was not dirty dealing. It was not the abortion of justice. But instead it was the very definition of justice. Because even in passing over all of the former sins that came before, He was right in doing so. He remained just and true for He paid His own price for you. That justice may be served. And that you might be saved. He is both just and the justifier. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26 is a new and deeper revelation of an ancient, ancient reality. A reality that you can see as far back as Scripture records God's dealing with men. You can see it in the garden. You can see it in the flood. One of my favorite places to see it is in Exodus chapter 34. you got your Bible, look there today. In Exodus chapter 34, in verses 1 through 9, and If you know the narrative, then the people of Israel have left Egypt and God has led them out with a mighty hand and He has brought them through the sea and they have followed the cloud and they have followed the fire and here they are at Sinai. And God has attempted to give them the law once and they have rebelled and He has reacted in discipline. 
And it is time for them to receive the law from a holy God for the final time. And in Exodus chapter 34, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the word that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Proclaimed his name. The essence of his holy character and being. In verse 6 it says, The Lord passed before him and this is what he proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's character on display. A God who is merciful and glorious. This would have been particularly important after the events that had just transpired. A God merciful and glorious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And all too well does Moses know it. For the justifier is also just, and the God who is merciful and glorious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love has just ordered the Levites to slaughter tens of thousands that rebelled in the desert by worshiping at the feet of a golden calf. And so what does Moses do? Does he argue with God? Does he point out the perceived inconsistencies and in the things that God has said about forgiving iniquity and sin and by no means clearing the guilty? No, you know what Moses does? Moses falls down and worships. Because that's what creatures do before a holy creator. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses doesn't argue. Moses worships. And then Moses pleads. And he pleads on the mercy and the graciousness and the abounding steadfast love and faithfulness of his God. Knowing full well from the mouth of the Lord to his ears that what he could get was either. 
What do you do with this? I mean, if you want to, to, to take this passage and begin to exegete it, you have an issue that pops up right off the bat. And the issue is between these two seemingly polarized statements about God's character. I would argue, I would, uh, argue to you that they are not polarized at all. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there, proclaiming the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay, there's the first one. All seems to go pretty well together in our mind. But then he continues, But who will by no means clear the guilty? And not only will he not clear the guilty, but will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now men would like often in dispensational era to take a knife and divide the word of God in half, but I would tell you that God does not change and neither does his word. And the same God who passed over former sin to become both the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ is the same God that was proclaiming His character to Moses on that mountain. And this is His character. Merciful and faithful, slow to anger and forgiving sin who will by no means clear the guilty. And men will say, but that doesn't make any sense. Because if you need to be forgiven of sin and iniquity and guilt you need to be cleared of and forgiven of sin and evil, you are by definition guilty. And He doesn't clear the guilty. What do you do with that? I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God that goes beyond speaking supernovas into nuclear fire. It is the power of God that goes beyond splitting seas. It is the power of God that has the ability to cause those who were once guilty to be guilty no more. That's what it is. Paul says, man, when he says, I'm not ashamed, he is saying a mouthful, Mount Zion. You want to be forgiven? How can you be forgiven when He doesn't clear the guilty? By miracle that you become not guilty. That's how. There must be miracle, which is exactly why when we get to chapter 4, Paul is going to quote from King David out of Psalm 32, proclaiming, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Because the gospel is the power of God to make those who were guilty not. That's justification. It comes from the justifier who is just, who was willing to use the currency of His Son's lifeblood to ransom you and I that we may be not guilty. The justification that comes to us through faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 1-8, through 8, Paul continues, and he says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul speaks here a whole lot about counting and the counted. He talks about Wages being counted as what is due. Things that are not due being counted as gifts. And most spectacularly, this statement about Abraham. Our forefather according to the flesh, Paul writes, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a very particular term that Paul is using. And anytime you see Paul grab onto a word and just start hammering it over and over and over and over, it always ought to kind of send the little exegetical flags up. You need to look at what he's doing because one thing that we can say about Paul is he's not using the same word over and over and over because his vocabulary is shallow. He's using it over and over and over on purpose. He's drawing our eyes, drawing our attention to some particular thing. The word here for counted is uh, logiomazai. It's a mouthful. And it means to number through reckoning. So not, not simply just to, 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 to count as you count on your fingers, but to number through reckoning. There is the idea of some thought that is going into this. This is a whole lot less, um, you know, counting all the cows in the pen then it is more like what Brandon and Dub do with our finances and where does this piece need to go and where does that piece need to go and explaining to us why the things work the way they work because it's being counted according to something that is very particular. As a matter of fact, this word finds its root in the word logos, which means a word is the expression of intelligence. So this is intelligent counting. This is a reckoning. As a matter of fact, a lot of the translations translated exactly that way, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so, when you look down the page, you get to verse 4, it seems to make perfect sense. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Man, when you go out and work at the end of the week, you get ready, or at the end of two weeks or the month, whenever they pay you. None of us are high enough rollers to get paid on the quarter, are we? I don't think so. This is blue-collar church, man. <laughs> right? Whenever they pay you, you come in and, and you get your wages, and, and you reckon those a certain way. You count those a certain way. Unfortunately, a lot of it gets counted in taxes and the lines down on the bottom of the page. It's always fun to see that kid get their first sure enough Sure enough, tax-deducted paycheck and realize what the rest of us live with on a regular basis, right? So you go in there and, man, your, your wages are reckoned to you. Could be reckoned in a lot of different ways. Maybe it's by the hour. Maybe it's by the 
percentage. Maybe it's by the job. Maybe it's by salary. Whatever the case may be, your wages are reckoned. There they are. And it is not counted as a gift. Man, Christmas comes around. Your boss gives you a Christmas gift. Man, you write him a thank you note. Thanks, man. Your boss doesn't give you a Christmas gift. You don't say a word. Why? It's a gift. But man, come payday. When that check's in the box, nobody writes a thank you note for the check. And conversely, if the check's not in the box, unlike the Christmas gift that has no obligation whatsoever, man, there's an obligation to this deal. This is not a gift. This is reckoned as what is due. And you want chaos on a job site, miss payroll. You'll get it every time. Because people have an expectation of what's coming. And so Paul says, look, here's how it works with a wage. The wages of sin is death, man. You go out and, and, and you do the things, you do the work of sin, then the wage that is going to be paid that is your due is death. The thing is, is salvation works in the opposite manner. And while the wages of sin is death is perfectly straightforward in reckoning, salvation's reckoning is beyond men. Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You see, the problem is, is sin equals death, but belief does not equal righteousness. Man, righteousness is righteousness. Belief is belief. There's a lot of things that evil men believe that are true, that do not equal and are not reckoned as righteous. There are things Scripture tells us that Satan's and the, Satan and the demons believe that are absolutely true and they do not equal righteousness because belief and righteousness are two completely different concepts. And yet, at the grace of the justifier, salvation reigns through faith. Faith that is being reckoned as something it's not. Faith that is being reckoned as righteousness. In chapter 4, verse 13, Paul continues and says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Literally, there is no counting of sin. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, and in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Friends, I would propose to you that Scripture teaches us that a faith that is not righteousness, but is reckoned as righteousness by the justifier to such a degree that it causes something that previously didn't exist to exist, and it causes life to come from death is a potent, potent faith. Man, that's no run-of-the-mill belief. 
That's something that we're talking about a faith that God in all His holiness and all His justice, for remember, He's not just the justifier, He's just. He by no means clears the guilty. And somehow here, you have to become not guilty. And the means by which this salvation and righteousness unto life comes to you is a faith that is so potent that it is the means by which something comes to exist that didn't exist, the new creation. It is the means by which God brings life from death. The faith that accompanies salvation is not weak and it is not tepid. It is not blown with the wind. It does not change like the seasons. It's because it doesn't have its root in man. It's not where it has its source. It's not where it comes from. Scripture tells us unequivocally that the faith that accompanies salvation is the very gift of God Himself to men. It comes directly from Him. It is His. It belongs to Him. And He gives it to His people. You can't read Romans chapter 4 without reading Ephesians chapter 2. I used to, when I was a young man, I used to, it bothered me to quote too often, quote unquote, iconic passages of Scripture. And then at some point in time I realized that you can't preach any of the Gospel of John, you can't preach any of Romans, you can't preach any of Ephesians, you can't preach any of Colossians if you're not willing to quote iconic passages of Scripture. They're iconic for a reason. Man, this faith that is so potent and so capable is the very gift of God. That's why it's potent and capable. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not the result of works so that no one may boast. I mean, this is just the question that Paul has answered. What becomes of our boasting if this comes through faith and not through works? And he says our boasting is null and void. People will say, well, at least I had the good sense to believe. No, friend, God had the good sense to give you faith so that you might believe. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, man. You can't gin it up, friends. can't do it. Your nature, as revealed in the Gospel, is the same as mine. Our nature, as revealed in the Gospel, is people that are ungodly and unrighteous and suppress the truth, not people who are godly and righteous and believe the truth. And God gives the gift of faith. The faith that is so potent that it is used by Him to bring life from the dead and to call into existence that which previously did not exist. This gift from God is a profound gift to you. Man, don't take it for granted. It is a profound gift to you. Oh man, it will cause you hardship. <laughs> Do not disdain it. You know, in Matthew chapter 17, I still remember to this day sitting in RAs, Royal Ambassadors, with old Mike Ferguson. He had the little card. I don't know where he got it. It had a little card that had this verse on it. It had a little mustard seed with a piece of cellophane tape on it. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, 
And Jesus, he doesn't answer in the way that you would, he doesn't answer in the way that I would answer. He doesn't answer in the way that you would answer. What we would do is pick this guy up and hug him and comfort him and tell him everything was going to be okay and then begin to tell him why. And that is not what Christ does. What Christ does is look at him and the disciples who are all sitting around, you know, with their teeth in their mouth, as my granny used to say. out of options and he says oh faithless and twisted generation how long am I to be with you and how long am I to bear with you bring him here to me you go man that's kind of tough no it's okay it really is okay let me tell you what when we come up short we feel like the best thing that we can do is offer some comfort in the midst of the storm, and that's not so bad necessarily. Let me tell you what, Jesus doesn't come up short. And so what He does is address this man's highest need. And this man's highest need is not something that's easy to believe. This man's highest need is the deliverance of His child. And that's exactly what Christ is going to do. Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. And then disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. These men aren't yet even born again. Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you that if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I fear that we often come to this passage and expect to get something we don't. Kind of like the way you don't expect Jesus to respond the way that He does, but then He does. I think we often come to this passage, you know, I've been guilty of this, and look at it and go, okay, you know, if, just, just a, if, if I can have just a little faith, here I am and I'm under crisis and I'm, my, my faith is, is wavering and, and if I can just have a, a little faith, friends, that, that just, just faith like a mustard seed, friends, that is not what Christ is saying Christ is not saying that we only need a little. Christ is pointing out the profundity of how potent even a speck of actual God-given faith is. Man, if you have this and you have it from Him and it's real, even the relatively small amount, the mustard seed, that's the smallest seed in all of the garden, Even the mustard seed is so potent that you could say to this mountain, be moved, and it would move. Man, the faith that accompanies salvation, the faith that calls life from death and that God uses to bring about something out of nothing is potent, potent stuff. It is powerful stuff. Man, we short sell it. I know I do. We short sell faith and we short sell prayer. You know, things get bad, real bad. You don't know what else to do. Well, what, what can I do for you? Well, I guess we'll just have to have faith and pray. 
friends, it's not just have faith and pray. It's we have faith and prayer. Faith that God uses. Prayer that God uses. Faith that is the means to bring something out of nothing in life to death. The faith that God looked down upon Abram after giving it to him. You understand it had to have come from God because otherwise God is not going to see it as being valuable enough to do what he does. Man, if this had came from Abraham, he'd look down on it and go, works of an ungodly man working in unrighteousness to suppress the truth. But that's not what God does. God looks down and he sees faith, faith that came from him. And he says, now there's something. And Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Man, look at Abraham's faith in action. Look at what this potent faith does. In Romans chapter 4, verse 18, Paul continues... And he says, in hope he believed against hope. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Man, this thing that may have well started like a mustard seed in Abraham grew stronger and stronger and stronger. For now... Life has been spoken out of death and something out of nothing. Its source, its beginning, was from faith, but it exists for faith. And it is accomplishing that which God created it for. Man, if you look at Abraham's faith, man, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and then out of not an ungodly character but now a godly character he goes forth in obedience to do the righteous things of faith it's amazing how much parallel you see between Romans chapter 4 in the life of Abraham and what James has to write in his epistle let's take a look at what it looked like for Abraham in Genesis chapter I know that says Exodus but that's not right in Genesis chapter 15 Verses 1 through 6. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1 through 6, we see the, the events that Paul is speaking of. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him 
as righteousness. I want you to notice the potency of faith that comes from God on both sides. Man, there is certainly a recognition of its righteousness and potency on God's side. He uses it as the means to bring life for death from death and something out of nothing. But look at the potency, the effect that it has on Abraham. He looks at him when he is 99 years old. He'll be 100 by the time it's all said and done, by the time the event actually takes place. Man, dude is going to be 100 years old, and his wife nearly as old, and after decades of trying, are going to have a son. Abraham doesn't even ask how. He just believes God. And that's potent faith. Friends, we've talked about this plenty of times before. You cannot decide what you desire and you cannot decide apart from the new creation what you believe. You go tell a 100-year-old couple that they're going to have a kid next year. There's only one way that, well, I guess you could just be nuts. That's one way. And the only way you're going to believe is if God gives you the faith to believe. And He does. And out of that faith, Abraham begins to obey in righteousness. It's the exact opposite of what we see in Romans chapter 1. It's the opposite of ungodliness using unrighteousness to suppress the truth of God. Instead, believing God's truth leads to godliness, leads to faithful obedience to that truth. We see it as the hallmark of Abraham's life. Man, in Genesis chapter 17... In verse 9 through 14, the faith that came before circumcision, so it would be clear that the promise comes by faith and not by law, results in faithful obedience to circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17, in verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you, shall be circumcised. He picks up again in verse 22 and says that when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham, and then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men in Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men in his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The faith that came to Abraham before circumcision in order that it would be clear that the promise of God rested not in works done by men in the flesh, but in God and in faith in God, then moves to the obedience of that faith out of godly character, acting in righteousness, not to suppress the truth, but instead as a testimony to proclaim the truth of the circumcision of the heart that is to come in Jesus Christ. Friends, let me tell you something. When you're 100 years old and God tells you that you're going to have a child, the only way you believe it is if He gives you the faith to do it. If God comes to you at 99 years old 
and tells you to circumcise yourself and all the male members of your household and you're willing to actually do it, in a day before Novocaine and scapels, the only way you do it is if God gives you a potent faith that provides. It doesn't stop there. He believes that Saren's barrenness will be overcome. And God is faithful. In chapter 17, in verse 15 through 17, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine years old, bear a child? She did. I think it hits its zenith in doing what Paul alludes to as hoping against hope. Yes, believing these things, acting in obedience when this is what required difficult things, no doubt. Difficult things. Painful things. Man, you want to see faith that grew strong and faith that hoped against all reckoning of man? You see it in Genesis chapter 22. In verses 1 through 8, where it says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. They came to the place which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place 
the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham grew strong in his faith. For the faith that accompanies salvation is from the righteousness or is the righteousness that accompanies salvation is from faith and it is for faith. It accomplished that for which it is sent to the point that God says, okay, here's the deal. You're 99 years old. When you're 100, you're going to have a son and he is who the promise will be reckoned to you through. It will be through him that the nation comes. It will be through him that all the world will be blessed. It will be through Him that the Messiah will come and you will see the justification of your justifier. Now kill Him. We would do well to ask ourselves, do we possess this kind of faith? Do we possess this type of profound faith? For this is the faith that accompanies salvation. This is the faith that came to our father Abraham. This is the faith of Romans 4, 24. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The faith in Jesus Christ that leads to justification that is counted to us is the same faith that Abraham had. It is the same faith that spoke life out of death to him. It is the same faith that caused him to go forth in obedience and circumcision and believing in God for the birth of his son and be willing to follow God in the testimony of what he would do in Jesus Christ all the way to the point of putting the knife to his own boy. Do you have that kind of faith? Man, this falls under... And listen, I'm not. if you're lost, man, I'm talking to you. That you may come to it. If you're saved... I'm talking to you. And this is, we look in the mirror. We test ourselves daily to see if we're in the faith. We test ourselves daily to see if we're in the faith. That's a good thing. You walk away with confidence when you pass the test. If you don't pass the test, praise God, hit your knees and be born again. Do we have this kind of faith? We say, well, I have faith that while God might test my faith to, to, to the end, He would not really require me to sacrifice my son. No, he wouldn't. As a matter of fact, he specifically sacrificed his so you wouldn't have to be sacrificed nor sacrifice your own. You're exactly right, he wouldn't. But Abraham didn't know that. Well, we know that the character of God, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Praise the Lord. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Man, we got all sorts of revelation. Praise the Lord. Abraham didn't know that. He was not yet in the ark of redemptive revelation to a place. As a matter of fact, that was the place 
that was the place where God said, here's what I'm going to do so you don't have to. And until that moment, men didn't know. Abraham wasn't playing the game of faithfulness right up to the deal breaker. Abraham didn't have a deal breaker. He was going to cut him like a sacrificial lamb. We know that. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19, speaking of this very faith, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Why would you do that? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Friends, what Hebrews would tell us was that you were at the last moment of synaptic response when Abraham could have stopped himself. An instant later and it would have been too long. Why? Because he believed God with a faith that came from God that is so valuable in the mind of God that it will be reckoned as righteousness. And he believed that if all else failed, God would raise the boy right up off the altar. That is a profound faith. Friends, let me tell you what that's not. That's not intellectual assent. Man, we shouldn't try to talk people into this kind of faith because you can't be talked into this kind of faith. What we should do is encourage people to come to this faith and then pray and pray and pray in faith that the Holy Spirit will give it to them because you can't talk a guy into believing what will cause you to do that. It does not happen. He believed... Well, does this mean that the promise isn't coming through Isaac? No, God said the promise is coming through Isaac. The promise must come through Isaac. Well, how are you going to do that when he's dead? Well, I guess God will just raise him back up. I don't know. Can you imagine the weight that was on that man? Hey, buddy, faith is profound. It's not flippant. It's not flippant. Can you imagine the weight that was on him as he told his servants to stay? You don't even want to see what's about to happen. Put the wood on his own boy's back. Faith is critical. It is profound. It is the gift of God through which He brings life to the dead. Something out of nothing. From faith, for faith, to the obedience of faith. It's the exact opposite of the natural man in chapter 1. It's not ungodless and unrighteous in suppressing the truth. It is godly and righteous in celebrating the truth. Faith is critical. Faith is not magic. Faith is not magic. Unfortunately, when you, you, you talk to some people today, they would believe it is. They would believe that if you would just believe hard enough in any giving, given thing then you would possess it. 
Name it, claim it, whatever you want to call it. Friends, faith isn't magic. People have faith in all sorts of things. People have faith in their own two hands. Typically call that pride. People have faith in government. They have faith in money. They have faith in medicine. They have faith in friends. 401k, family. People have faith in Allah. People have faith in Buddha. People have faith in the physical might of the sword. People have faith that if they believe hard enough, their sick child won't die. And in spite of such faith, it just fails every single day. It's failed millions of times during the duration of this sermon around this world. Faith isn't magic. The truth is, is faith alone is meaningless. Now, don't start throwing rocks at me for walking away from sola fide. That's not what I mean. Faith is a concept. Faith as a concept means nothing. What good is faith if the faith you have is in a lie? It's good for nothing. As a matter of fact, not only is it good for nothing, it is actually extremely dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. Faith alone is meaningless. When Scripture talks about faith as being powerful, it always and without fail assumes upon the one in which the faith resides. Without fail. When, when it says faith is powerful and it's working, it's not talking about this kind of vacuous, conceptualized faith. It's talking about Particular faith in someone. Not something, but in someone. The certainty of faith from which righteousness comes is not found in the believing. The certainty of faith in which righteousness comes is found in the faithfulness of the one being believed in. It is always God. Faith is not magic. Faith does not produce realities. Faith doesn't call life from death. Faith doesn't call something that exists out of nothingness. God does those things. And He has seen fit to use His promise to convey it to His people, to me and you, that we may believe those things and faith may be the means by which God acts in goodness and righteousness, revealing His gospel to us. But make no mistake, it is not the power of your faith that causes the mountains to move. It is God who promises. Every time. And nothing less and nothing short. Look at what we've just read just in the last two weeks in Romans chapter 3 and 4. I'll give you just a couple of bullet points. Chapter 3, verse 2. The righteousness of God through faith alone. No, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In Him. Not in something else. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. Not just that Abraham believed, he believed God. He believed what God promised him. He believed what God told him as outrageous as it was. It's not that he was believing the outrageous, he was believing the one who was promising it. He was believing God in Romans chapter 4, 16 through 17. 
That is why it depends on faith. Like we said, anytime Scripture uses faith, it assumes that the faith is being spoken of. Object is God. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. All of this occurred in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 and 22, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. What was his attitude? He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. End quote. The reason that something that is not righteous is counted as righteous is because the faith that is held is placed in the righteous one. He believed the righteous one. He believed that God would do what God said He would do. You know why faith that moves mountains moves mountains? Because God says, Hey man, say it and I'll move that mountain. That's why. And when you do, he moves. The promise of the gospel is being held out to you. God is promising you that if you believe him, he will bring life from death in you. He is promising you that if you believe him, if you would but believe him, He will bring something to exist in you that did not exist. Faith is critical for salvation, but it's faith in the promise of the one true God that is critical for salvation. Faith in anything else won't suffice. And this is why the very first sermon at Pentecost, Peter stood up and he said, listen guys, it's got to be faith, but it's got to be faith in the real deal and nothing less. Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus. Not another one. Not, not one that's had the Romans 1 treatment put on it where... We took something called Jesus, but because we were ungodly and He was godly, we used our unrighteousness to suppress His truth and make Him look like something that is more comfortable for us, that is saying less holy and more common, really to make Him look kind of like a supercharged version of us so that we could have a better idol. Not that Jesus. This one. This Jesus. The one that's declared right here in His own Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus God delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was this Jesus that was delivered up to be your propitiation. Not another one. This one. This one is the one that provides your ransom. This one is the one who if you believe Him 
will act in faithfulness according to you. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. Ungodly men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth of God. But godly men, in their righteousness, proclaim, celebrate, and glorify the truth of God. Man, we want to make the little plastic Jesus. Faith in that one is not magic. Faith in the one who promises to bring something out of nothing and life out of death will result in the promise fulfilled. Life from death and existence out of non-existence. I urge you today to believe the promises of this Jesus. Not one of man's creation, not one of doctrinal books, good or bad. Not one of isms and denominations and positions. This one. This one. Say, man, there's just stuff in there I just can't believe. Man, I can't believe that God would be good and put Abraham through what he put him through. Ask God for faith. Right now. I'm not talking about theoretically. I mean, you should do that right now. You should ask God for faith. He's faithful to give it. His promises are true. By their own nature, they merit being believed. Ask God for faith. For from it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Believe the promises of this Jesus. See the power of God unto salvation revealed in you. Witness God call to exist what does not exist. For Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, but not only to him, but also to all of us who believe in faith and the propitiation and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, 